Good evening and welcome to the good news. I'm Barbara Schreiner Trudell and I am filling in for Rev Robert as he takes a little break, hopefully in the sunshine. I'm not so sure though. We got some snow here and I'm sure there's some snow in Denver, but that doesn't mean there isn't sunshine. Well, I'm so delighted to be here yet again, filling in. I really do like this. The idea of good news rather than bad news kind of fits my spirit a little bit better. All right, so let's get to it. I found this story, which I thought was kind of interesting. Love letters written by Bob Dylan. I'm sure you've heard of him. <laughs> Pretty famous guy. Letters written to his high school sweetheart, and they're expected to sell for $800,000. I'm not sure if they did. This story's from yesterday, but... Wow, what a story. So there's an archive of 42 handwritten love letters uh, done by Bob Dylan for his high school sweetheart, and they were put up for auction. You know, it's interesting. Barbara Ann Hewitt, who is the woman this was written to, has over 150 pages of notes that were sent to her by Bob Zimmerman at the time, who then of course changed his name to Bob Dylan. And there's a wide range in scope and content. There's poetry, there's his never ending uh, profession of affection. And one letter even describes his preparation for the talent show at his high school. So that's kind of cool and an invitation to a Buddy Holly show. Wow, that's very, very cool. The original envelopes are also with the letters. So it's kind of an interesting, an interesting little story. And this archive has never before been seen, right? This is a window into his life that is really kind of unknown. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, the handwritten letters have sold individually in the past, but the trustee of Hewitt's estate wanted to keep this archive together to document the transformation of Bob Zimmerman into Bob Dylan. So that's kind of cool. Uh, the auction also contains an unrelated archive of 24 handwritten poems by Dylan with the subject header, Poems Without Titles, penned while at the University of Minnesota. And when this was pulled off, they already had a bid of $76,000 for that. Wow. How cool is that? Way to go, Bob Dylan. You know, he's a pretty famous guy. So the stuff he's doing, it matters. It matters to a lot of people. Well, here's a story I really, really love. Having had a disability a while ago and not able to go to certain places, when I saw this story, it just warmed my heart so much. Certain states have allowed visitors these free off-road wheelchairs in their parks and nature areas. How cool is that? These things are able to move across uneven terrain, even snow, uh, tree stumps, all kinds. Like they, these are serious. These are serious little all-terrain wheelchairs. And what it's allowed to have happen is people with disabilities who may not have been able to go to these parks or were very limited on whereabouts they could go in these parks, all of a sudden it's just taken down the bars and the walls and opened it up to everyone. And this is available in Colorado, Michigan, South Dakota. Um, it's a thing uh, that's growing and expanding. And they said in the article that some of these machines 
are weighing 500 pounds and they're like a caterpillar but without the scoop in the cabin <laughs> but the tracks allow them to do some really amazing things the first state to start the trend was Colorado in 2017 and went on to Michigan. They have 12 of these wheelchairs. And the woman who had this idea was uh, a woman who had had a, an accident. So her dream, this Amy Copeland, her dream was to be able to continue being in the parks and doing the stuff she loves so much. And this was something that was really important to her. So she was an avid outdoors woman and she wasn't going to let her disability interfere with her love of nature. And so she established the Amy Copeland Foundation, which just recently raised $200,000 for 11 chairs to be donated to Georgia. And it's, you know, it's interesting because, of course, she had an accident which caused her to be disabled. And that accident has led to something beautiful, beautiful happening. And she says, people have told us this is life changing. Well, yeah, I believe it is. Uh, she said, I started this out of my own inner passion and to see how many people share my passion, not only people with disabilities, but everybody is really incredible. And she says, I wouldn't be the person I am today if I didn't have the outdoors as a space of healing and growth. These chairs even get used for hunting. Well, I'm not really big into hunting, but <laughs> I'm glad that it's available to everybody. What a great piece of good news. I love that. Well, and here's another story that, that really touched my heart as well, because there's so many stories about veterans coming back into the U.S. and not maybe being cared for as well as they should be. And this is a great new goal. The U.S. nears its goal to house every homeless veteran. I'll tell you, that, that's something. So in February, the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs established a new goal to prevent and end homelessness among military vets after seeing progress towards earlier goals stall out in 2016. The new goal to house 38,000 veterans this year is close to being realized and could bring the number of homelessness to near zero based on the government's point in time count totally collected in January. So those numbers could be a little bit off, but you know what? This is good stuff and it's important. So as of September 30th, the department had achieved 30,914 permanent housing placements meeting 81% of the goal to ensure at-risk veterans are safeguarded. The other thing is that with this permanent housing, which they hope to ha have another, you know, bunch of them in by December 31st to actually meet their full goal. What also is interesting is they're helping people in other ways as well, that they're giving them housing, but they're also looking after other things, healthcare, job training, legal and education assistance. So it's not just a Band-Aid on a carotid artery. It is actually a collective of things that helps a person to, again, acknowledge their own value and worth, to see that they're cared for. And, you know, the thing is, when people have a home, right there, there's a level of safety and security that changes everything. It creates a sense of possibility and maybe even hope which I'm sure for many of these veterans would be something that would be of great value. 
great value and for any homeless person really but i'm really glad to see that as people are reaching out and doing the work that the american government wants them to do in return they're actually remembering them on their return and i think that's something to applaud probably more of that needs to be done but we're going to applaud the win when we get it so this is really really good news so on a lighter note this is this is kind of an interesting story because what are the odds so during hurricane ian this woman loses her wedding ring and it's like <laughs> thinking it's gone it's lost forever she had given up the fact that she was even going to find it she lost it outside her Fort Myers home just days before Hurricane Ian crashed into the coast of Southwest Florida last Wednesday. And despite enlisting her husband and children to help search around the yard and garage for two days, there was no sign of the ring. Garner says, I just accepted that it was gone. It was only a thing. It's replaceable. And I just let it go. We knew the hurricane was coming, so we just kind of said goodbye to the ring. Now, the family stayed home during the storm and went outside to clean up once it had passed. We're about 10 minutes into cleaning, and my husband is cleaning up the brush and trees right next to the garage, and there's a pile of brush, and he moves over one pile, and there's the ring sitting right on top. <laughs> so Garner says she couldn't believe they found the ring. Her neighborhood didn't experience the flooding that many parts of the state did, but 150 mile an hour winds left massive piles of trees and brush throughout the area. So, wow, there's a miracle if I ever heard one. That's fascinating that, I mean, wow, who knew, who knew? All right. Well, here's some beautiful young men doing good work, helping out. You know, sometimes we've got to remember that teenagers are people too. And I think sometimes we give them a little bit of a, uh, eh, a little bit of a rough time, but this group of high school football players used their mighty strength to help an injured woman who was trapped in her car to get her out. And I go, bravo, young men, bravo. A Georgian woman is thanking her stars that it was nothing less than a group of buff high schooler football players who just happened to be passing by when she needed help. Together, they lent their strength to pry open the jam door of the woman's wrecked car, which allowed the rescuers to access this badly injured driver. The Rome's heavy football team was out in a force that morning. They were on their way to school when they saw the accident and they went, you know, we've got to help and they jumped in and immediately started to work and first off they opened up the passenger only to realize they couldn't get her out that way and so they had to go and open up the other door and they got her out and adam says we used all our muscles we're pretty big people we're strong we play football and we lift weights a lot the door was extremely bent and broke but it all happened in about a minute so these young men they did good work and they deserve to be, you know, applauded for all that they've done. So bravo, bravo. Well, we're going to take a little commercial break and then we will be right back with the good news.
Well, I'll tell you, this good news news program is one of the things that I just love about the New Thought Media Network because, you know, there's so much bad news out there. Isn't it refreshing (laughs) to have a little bit of good news? I like it. So here's one that uh, all of us New Thoughters can really appreciate. Mindfulness. The mindfulness program is shown to be as effective as antidepressant drugs for treating anxiety disorders. And I think we knew that, didn't we? But isn't it nice to see it in the media that they're beginning to look at this different? A guided mindfulness-based stress reduction program was as effective as using the gold standard antidepressant drugs for patients with anxiety disorder, according to a first-of-its-kind randomized clinical trial from Georgetown University Medical Center. Mindfulness meditation currently is reimbursed by very few insurance providers, says Elizabeth Hoge, MD director of the Anxiety Disorders Research Program and associate professor of psychiatry at Georgetown. Our study provides evidence for clinicians, insurers, and healthcare systems to recommend and provide reimbursement for mindfulness-based stress reduction as an effective treatment for anxiety disorders. How great is that? Let us put the antidepressants in the back And let us just take this time to connect with our true self. I love it. So a big advantage of mindfulness meditation is that it doesn't require a clinical degree to train someone to become a facilitator. Additionally, sessions can be done outside of a medical setting, such as a school or community center. Anxiety disorders can be highly distressing. They include generalized anxiety, social anxiety, panic disorder, and fear of certain places or situations. So all of those things increase the risk of suicide, disability, distress, and, you know, keeping the psychiatric clinics pretty darn busy. What's beautiful about this is that this can change the game, that we can begin to use a tool like meditation to you know, really take back our own power so that we can live our lives uh, a little more authentically and with a greater sense of peace. And, you know, once we learn how to do meditation, which is something we all teach here, is we can do this for ourselves and it doesn't cost us anything. How's that for saving money, helping the economy? and healing people of anxiety and panic disorder, which is really, really important. There's a whole lot of that going on in the world today. So I love this story. I thought this is good, good news. And here's another piece of really cool news. And this is a lab-grown blood given to people in this first clinical trial. So this is very interesting because there are certain blood types that are extremely rare. And if that person needs blood, they may very well die because it's not available. So British scientists have grown human red blood cells in a lab for the first time and conducted a clinical trial on patients. The blood is grown by encouraging stem cells found in a blood donor sample to become new red blood cells. And it opens the door to transfusion treatments for those with ultra ultra rare blood types. So most of us know about A, B, O, A, B, right? We know about those ones. But what about a patient needs a transfusion of the Bombay blood group? 
I've never even heard of that until I found this story. It's a tough call as the British um, NIH knows of three people in all of the UK with this ultra rare blood type. So if, if that's the blood type you have, you might be that one or two people, uh, you could be in trouble. Certain diseases such as sickle cell anemia uh, require regular blood transfusion. And if this person was also Bombay blood type or JKAB or RH null, also called golden blood, I've heard of golden blood before, or Sarah, S-A-R-A type after the first person it was discovered in, they're in serious danger. A transfusion with the wrong blood type will be viewed as foreign and attacked by the immune system. So this is really, uh, really serious if you've got this very rare blood. But in this new trial, tiny spoonfuls of the lab-grown blood containing radioactive particles were given to 10 healthy patients. In this way, they can track how long the blood remains in the patient's bloodstream. A red blood cell typically lasts 120 days after which the body replaces them. Normal donated red blood cells contain both younger and older cells, but since lab-grown transfusions would contain only new cells, it could be possible for smaller and less, less frequent uh, transplants to be undertaken. That's pretty good news. This world leading research lays the groundwork for the manufacture of red blood cells that can be safely be used to transfuse people with disorders like sickle cell. Wow, the potential of this work to benefit hard to transfuse patients is I think more than a little bit significant. Wow, wow, wow. What's science going to think of next? Oh, here we go. <laughs> On that note, let's come up with another one. Uh, disaster survivors in remote areas could be kept alive by edible drones. Who knew? I'll tell you, people have great imaginations, don't we? Drones can be crucial during natural disasters by transporting supplies to people in need, but they can only carry about 30% of their mass as a payload. What if, don't you love that? Yeah, I watch the regular news and what if is always something really horrible going to happen next. I like this one. What if the delivery drones themselves were made of food? So researchers have developed a small flying craft with wings made of rice cakes. I'll tell you, brilliant. A team at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology decided the answer was to make the wings perform both as functional for flight and as cargo at the same time. So the drone could deliver more life-sustaining nutrition or medication. To fashion the wing, the rice cakes are laser cut into hexagonals and fixed together by gelatin. They're then wrapped in protective plastic before being affixed to the flying element. Cornstarch and cornstarch with chocolate were both uh, trialed as adhesive, but gelatin seems stronger. So the prototype saw the drone able to fly 10 meters per second, 32 feet, now, the team wants to transform other non-edible pieces by suggesting that structural components such as, a, I don't know, a rudder or whatever could also be 3D printed by edible, with edible material. So these are looking at ways to, they're also looking at ways to transport water on board. Is this genius or what? 
you know, it's interesting when I think of humanity and what we what we've done to cause challenges. And then I look at what we're doing to resolve situations. It really is a beautiful thing. Uh, the weed wingspan of about 27 inches results in enough rice cake and gelatin to deliver the equivalent of one breakfast serving with 80 grams remaining for a payload of vitamins or water. So that is very cool. And uh, the lead author, Quack, told uh, Spectrum, the wing tastes like a crunchy rice crisp cookie with a little touch of raw gelatin. Who knew? I think it's brilliant. I think that is just a sweet, sweet thing and a great, great thing to do. Okay, so our little best friend, the little dog. I'll tell you, it's amazing what little dogs do. And this one, talk about a clever pup. So this little dog got lost and turned itself into the police, <laughs> so to speak. So Steve Harper, 68, was walking his dog Rosie off leash in a park when a loud bang startled them both. While the border collie loves chasing squirrels and fetching balls, she hates loud booms. Someone let off a firework and Rosie does not like that. So obviously she started to run. Now, Rosie ran back to uh, this gentleman, and before he could put the lead back on, another firework went off and she just shot off. So Julie said her husband was very uh, upset, very distressed. He called his wife. He couldn't reach her. And a short while later, Julie was walking the couple's other dog, Laser, when she received a call from the police. And they said, have you got a black and white collie? And she goes, yeah. And they said, she just walked up and handed herself in at the station. <laughs> so she called her husband to let him know that Rosie was safe and sound. And the police posted a clip on Facebook of the brilliant dog making her way into the station, wandering around unseen before finding a quiet corner to lie down. <laughs> the police station made a new furry friend last week after a lost dog strolled into the station. We colored the CCTV of the border collie, Rosie, so you can see her approaching the doors before walking in and taking a seat. You know, it's interesting what dogs or animals can do, the brilliance of them. I, if anyone ever says that they don't have consciousness, man, I would argue that point. <laughs> All right. This is so cool. St. Elmo's fire. So a pilot captured this incredible spectacle called St. Elmo's fire. It's a very interesting phenomena. This uh, was captured. This picture was taken from the cockpit of the pilot's plane. Uh, he was flying from Miami to Denver when he encountered the scene. It was part of the overall effects of Hurricane Ian when it hit the Gulf Coast of Florida. St. Elmo's fire occurs when the atmosphere becomes charged and an electrical discharge of plasma is created between an object and the air around it. And this can happen to aircraft flying through heavily charged skies. So Andrus, the, uh, the pilot, says, I live in Florida and was doing the uh, Miami-Denver on the same day the hurricane Ian was passing by. It was a spectacle to see St. Elmo's fire. It was such a show. I was impressed because it was my first time that I'd saw them with that intensity. 
Now, St. Elmo's Fire is named after St. Erasmus of Formia, also known as St. Elmo, the patron saint of sailors. The phenomena which can warm of an imminent lightning strike was regarded by sailors with awe and sometimes considered to be a good omen. Another reason it's associated with sailors is that most of their ships were easy ground zero for the corona discharge that creates the amazing violet light. In this case of Andrus, it was probably created off the leading edge of his Airbus, another place it's been commonly recorded. How cool is that? It's really beautiful. Eh? I, I love that picture. Wouldn't it be cool to see? All right. Now here, this, you know, now we're going back a few years. Prehistoric human footprints unearthed in Spain are nearly 300,000 years old and unique in all of Europe. So look at those footprints. Wow. So 300 years ago, children were playing on the shore of a lagoon while their parents hunted in the shallows nearby. These are stories the stories contained in what were once believed to be 100,000 year old footprints, but which now confirmed to be much older. The state of the art scanning techniques has now dated them to be 295,800 years ago, which means they predate Neanderthals and were made just before an ice age. You know, I'm always astounded when, when we human beings have created technology that can actually talk about something that's 300,000 years old, like holy crow. The 87 prints, some smaller than others, were left by small children, teenagers, and adults, and were found on a beach in Spain, a pop popular holiday resort today. Recent investigations carried out at the site in the surroundings of the Donanan National Park now shows an age almost 200,000 years older than they originally had thought. And this new data placed the site of the sort of a long period ago, can't read the word, <laughs> a period characterized by, characterized by important variations in the landscape that would have consisted of an extensive coastal plain with large dune systems. So researchers used drones and uh, photogrammetry technology to stitch together high resolution images and record and create a digital model of the tracks. Wow. 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 That's all I can say about that. Well, we have come to the end of our show. I did have one more story for you, and I'm going to see if I can squeak it in quick. This is a Chinese method for growing vegetables year round in frigid temperatures. And this is in Canada, in Alberta. This incredible gentleman has created this incredible technology that does not require electricity, and he can grow anything. Cucumbers, peppers, lettuce, tomatoes in the frigid, frigid Alberta winter. So without using a single watt of electricity. Whoa, how cool is that? Growing vegetables in China's cold north has created these innovations and now it's moving to Canada. And who knows, maybe you're gonna see it in Colorado sometime soon. Well, that's the good news for this week. I'm so grateful that you took the time to check us out and see what we're doing. And uh, Reverend Robert will be back next week. Stay tuned for more good news next time around. I'm Barbara Schreiner-Trudell. Thank you for watching. <laughs>